<clears throat> all right. So thank you all for coming. I also want to say a special thank you um, because I don't usually get to say thank you to those who I don't see, but I'd like to say a special thank you to all those who, who watch on YouTube and the podcast as well. Um, there's obviously a following, you know, a decent amount of views every time. So uh, we appreciate you as well. And if you ever want to drop me a comment, uh, feel free to contact me, uh, you know, through the channel or, you know, rabbi at yachabad.com. Um, and I also, of course, appreciate all those that come here every single week uh, and join us here. And uh, particularly to make a discussion. Last week, we had a very animated discussion, uh, rightfully so. It's a very interesting topic. And uh, I hope everybody uh, got the ideas well and correct. And uh, the basic idea was, is just like everything else in life, uh, intellectual study as well has both a forbidden and a permitted and a middle ground. And we have to learn to um, figure out what is my intentions in doing this. And even though something is intellectual, doesn't necessarily mean it's something that you should be studying. You have to understand, is there, like everything else in life, does this further my connection with God? If it does, then go for it 100%. And there's no problem at all. Um, but really, that's the evaluation we have to make at every point in our lives. Yes, Rick. No, I, I was saying, huh, but I didn't realize I was not muted. I will mute myself. Ah, okay, okay. I got it, got it. Okay. But that, I find that very interesting. You should it's, definitely it's, then go watch last week's class because it, it evolved into a very fascinating discussion. Um, obviously, we know the, the greatest sages have, have studied the secular studies. Um, but as we said last week, you have to make sure, like anything else in life, it, it, it requires a connection with God. Um just as an aside, I didn't mention it last week, but in Judaism, um, when you are in a uh, restroom, you're not you're not allowed to study Torah. So many great sages would have uh, intellectual books in their restrooms and whatnot, in their home bathrooms uh, to to study and 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 broaden their general knowledge. Um, you know, where there's definitely not a problem over there, uh, and because especially great sages, it, it, you know. It's very hard for them not to study Torah. So they have to occupy their mind with something else. You know, unfortunately for us, uh, unless we're actually studying Torah, we're probably not thinking about Torah. But for great people, <laughs> unless their minds are busy with something else, they're probably studying Torah. So they would, uh, uh, you know, study, uh, you know, you could study, you know, intellectual things to, to broaden their general knowledge. Um, uh, and that was a, you know, great place to do it. So anyways, that, I just wanted to mention that as an aside. All right, this week, we're, we're actually going on a new path. As I've always mentioned, Tanya is has both a larger picture of what it's trying to present to us, and each chapter has fascinating discussions that are relevant in the moment, so to speak. And I always try to present the larger picture and <clears throat> what we're studying that week. So this week, in the larger picture, we're actually moving on to the next section. So in order for you to understand where the time is taking us, I'm going to have to give you what we've done till now. As a general overview, so we are now in chapter nine. Chapter one started off with a couple of questions, getting us to question our identity and our mission. And since then, we've discovered that there are two souls. There is a godly soul and there's an animal soul. Okay, so I'm going to repeat. We, we've discovered that there's two souls. There's a godly soul. And there's an animal soul. And really all the chapters since then, the end of chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, four, five, six, seven, eight, have all been discussing the godly soul and the animal soul. Um, what do we mean discovering the godly soul and the animal soul? We discovered that the souls are made up of different elements. In other words, there's the intellect, there's the emotions, 
there are the garments that allow its intellect and emotions to connect with whatever it's desiring. So for the godly soul, it's obviously connecting to Torah mitzvos. For the animal soul, it's connecting to pleasurable things. And then we discussed there's a middle ground of items where they can either fall, so to speak, under the purview of the godly soul, if you do them right, or under the purview of the animalistic soul, uh, if you do them wrong. Um, and that's really been the discussion till now. Um, discovering our souls. And so much so we've been discovering our souls that the Tanya has actually mentioned until this point the word soul 70 times. Conversely, uh, we have mentioned the word body only 10 times. That's because we have mostly been focusing on discovering and understanding our souls. Now, as we move on to chapter nine, we're going to discover how these souls interact with each other in the same body, right? So we, you know, we kind of discuss, all right, here's the godly soul, here's the animal soul. You know, does this fall under the godly soul? Does this fall under the animal soul? You know, where does this action fall under? Now we're going to discover what happens. Obviously, these two souls live in a body. Where are these souls residing in your body? And how do they interact with each other? Um, that is going to be today's discovery. Um, and of course, we're going to find out that they are at war with each other. They're not necessarily uh, buddy buddy. You know, they don't um, they don't um, uh, they don't particularly get along. Usually, of course, with the Tanya's training, maybe you can study how to make them get along. But uh, um, we're going to discover how they usually don't get along and what each one is fighting for. Okay. And uh, ultimately, we're going to describe it as a war. There's a war going on here. What does a war mean? A war means that there's a territory, disputed territory, and you're warring over that territory. In this case, what is the territory? The territory is our bodies. There's a war going on in our bodies. And uh, the, the war is basically who's going to be able to control the body. Okay, we got a couple comments here. Well, I got a comment here. In your eyes and in your blood and in your heart and in your brain. Well, we'll, we'll see. We'll, we'll get it. We'll get it. Um, all right. So first I'm going to ask you, I'm going to ask the crowd. Based on your knowledge of the Torah, if you know it from the time, it's a different story. Based on your knowledge of the Torah, where in the Torah does it say where the soul is? What does the Torah say where the soul is? You can either put in the comments or unmute yourself. But where does the soul reside? What does it say in the Torah? The godly souls in the brain, correct? And the animal souls in the heart? All right, again, you, you studied the Tanya, but I'm asking, putting knowledge oh, for the Tanya. The Torah says. Right, what does the Torah, does the Torah say that the soul is in the brain? Oh, uh, that's a kind of a trick question, Rabbi. I, I, th I, was, I thought we were going, I, I, I was applying my Tanya learning. I don't know. Exactly, to... exactly. Right. I'm trying to say, where in the Torah does it talk about a soul residing? It does talk about it. Yeah, Roberto. I think talks Roberto about it. Else, I don't think it. I don't think it's mentioned. It's, does it? It's right, not mentioned. Right. You wouldn't know it. You wouldn't. You wouldn't necessarily pick it up. That's why I'm asking the question. It's an interesting question. But the Torah does discuss where a soul resides. If you guys, is it huh? con connected to Hashem in some way? Like, a well, obviously, it's connected to Hashem. Well, well, there's two souls, of course. Um, someone's mentioning the heart. Not necessarily wrong. The question is, what's the source? It's an interesting thing. All right, I'll give you a hint. It's somewhere in the laws of kosher. Somewhere in the laws of kosher, we discuss where a soul might reside. The belly, the belly. In the blood. Very good, Roberto. In the blood. Mm. Very good. The Torah says we cannot eat the blood of an animal. Why? 
because the soul of the flesh, the third guess always gets it right. <laughs> At least it didn't strike out, right? The 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 uh the soul of the flesh resides in the heart, right? It says we do not eat the blood because the soul resides in the blood. Now remember that verse is talking about the animals. From this, we're going to gather. And as the Torah actually says, it's talking about the nefesh habasar, the, the physical soul, um, that the animalistic soul will be residing in the blood. So again, remember we said there's a godly soul, there's an animalistic soul. The animalistic soul will reside in the blood. The godly soul, of course, we know it talks about uh, God breathing in the nostrils, but it doesn't necessarily say where it went to. Um we're going to get, yes, indeed, it is in the brain. I'm not sure if there's a, a source for that or it's just tradition. Um, but uh, the the animal soul being in the blood primarily is uh, taken from that verse that we do not eat the blood of an animal because that's where the soul is. And so we don't want to eat the blood. Let's ask a question. What does it mean? Before we're going to read the Tanya, what does it actually mean that that a soul would be in the blood? Like, does that mean if I get a blood transfusion, will I get someone else's soul? Any any thoughts? What do you think? If the soul is in the blood, if I get a blood transfusion, do I get someone else's soul? Well, the, the fact that it's in the blood would indicate that it's throughout the entire body, like filling up the entire body as opposed to just lodged in one place. Okay, good. That's good, a good idea. Yes. Um, but specifically, I'm, okay, I'm trying to figure out what does it mean the blood is in the, the soul is in the blood? Does it mean that literally if I take that blood and I give it to someone else, I've given them a part of my soul? Yeah. Huh? I say, yeah, and I, I like the contribution that someone made about life force. That's blood is described as life force. All right, so here's what I would say. I would say like this. So we have an answer that says no. Um, we generally tend to think of the uh, emotions as residing in the heart. In fact, scientifically, there's a basis for it. You know, when certain feelings, your heart pumps faster or slower. Now, if someone gets a heart transplant, they don't get different emotions, right? So if, if uh, you get a heart transplant, you don't necessarily, you know, let's say you got a heart transplant, let's say you were very emotionless and you got a heart transplant from someone who's very emotional, you don't necessarily become a very emotional person. What it means that the soul resides in the blood or the emotions reside in the heart, it means that that's where the, um, it's kind of like a, a, a cup, a vessel. It's kind of, that's where it, it, it presents itself, but it's not actually part and parcel of it, okay? So that's where it, it reveals itself. That's where it comes, um, but it's not necessarily, that's what it is. Another example is, for example, your hand can write very brilliant things. Doesn't mean your hand itself is brilliant. Your hand it can take the 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 the, the, the um, intellectual ideas and write it with your hand, or your mouth talking brilliant words doesn't mean your mouth itself is brilliant. Your brain is brilliant, and it's coming and expressing itself in your mouth. So similarly, the soul likes to reside in the blood, but it's not actually the blood itself. Okay. So that's just an important thing. So when we talk about the soul being in the blood, don't confuse the soul as blood because don't forget the soul itself is spiritual. Uh, similarly, we'll talk about the godly soul being in the brain. It doesn't mean the, the soul is the brain. It means that's where the soul, you know, mainly and primarily resides and, and reveals itself 
and um, expresses itself, but it's not actually um, in the brain. Um, okay. Now we're talking about, um, and, and again, I'm just giving um, general pref uh, pre pre prefatory remarks so that you can appreciate when we read the words in the Tanya. Because a lot of times these questions come up, you know, so I want to preface it. Like, what does it mean that the soul is in the blood? What does it mean in the brain and then here? Then we're going to talk about, um, uh, right, the soul being in the blood. That means, as many people mentioned, its primary location is in the heart. Okay. And specifically the animalistic soul. So I, I want to preface again. Remember, we have the godly soul that wants to do godly things, connect to God. We have the animalistic soul that wants to have pleasure and enjoy life. So the animalistic soul primarily resides in the blood and primarily resides in the heart. Does that mean that the animalistic soul has no intellectual or thinking powers? No. We discussed in previous chapters that just as the godly soul has intellectual powers, so does the animalistic soul. The difference is, where is the primary location of the animalistic soul? Its primary location is where? In, this, in, this, in the heart, in the blood, which means the animalistic soul starts with emotions. That's a very important point. Why is it important? Because basically its intellect is there to serve its emotions and not the other way around. I'm going to say that again. The animalistic soul's mind is there to serve its emotions not its emotions serving its mind. So for example, um, let's say uh, somebody's feeling very sad and they want to feel better about themselves. So the emotions will say, I want to feel better about myself. And the mind will find ways to find different pleasures to feel better. So the mind is working, but it's not necessarily, it's not starting from the brain, it's starting from the heart. Another example is let's say you're angry at someone. That's a feeling. You're angry at someone. Now your mind is going to work on how to hurt that person. So it's the intellect is working, but that intellect, that mind, the brilliance that you're going to display in causing untold damage to the other person without being caught starts in the heart. So there's an activity of the brain, but it's starting from the heart. Another example, somebody desires um, money. The heart, the brain will try to figure out how to get money, assuming the desire for money is not godly in this case. Okay, it can be godly, of course. Um, the, the, the use of the intellect in this case is starting in the heart. And this is a very important point because uh, what basically this means, as we're going to discover, is in our lives, we want to be able to identify um, anything that we're trying to do. Why are we trying to do it? Remember, we have the godly soul, the animal soul. We really want to stick most of the time with our godly soul. Well, how do I know if the thing that I'm trying to do is, 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 is starting with the godly soul, the animalistic soul? Sometimes one of the ways to tell is it starting in the heart or not. Is it starting with a emotion? And oftentimes it may be starting with a emotion. Doesn't mean, by the way, all emotions are bad, uh, which is another discussion. But this is a discovery we're going, again, we're going to build this out. But the point is, as we're discovering that there's till now we discuss we discuss kind of the godly soul and animalistic soul on their own now we're discovering them as they interact with each other as they interact with the body and this is the going to be the uh journey over the next couple chapters to figure out um how exactly they reside in the body how they fight with each other how does one come on top and then finally in chapter 12 um 
so then, you know, what defines me as, you know, a good person or a bad person, it's a tzaddik, a rasha, righteous or wicked. So let us uh, take a look. We're going to be in chapter nine, page 112. And we are ready for some text. I hope you are as well. Uh, so again, if you have the uh, practical Tanya, which you should, and if you don't, you should get it. Uh, it's on page uh, 112. And I got to do a sh screen share over here, of course, um, just so uh, you can follow along. But ideally, you want to have your own book. Um, or Sorry, you definitely should have your own book. Okay. Um, let's look here. All right. In the previous chapters of Tanya, we've been introduced to our two souls, divine and animal soul, an animal. Their origins, remember the, the, the uh, a godly soul is a part of God itself. The animalistic soul also has a spiritual source, but for another time, I don't think it discussed its, uh, its origin. Their internal functioning, meaning their intellect and their emotions, their garments, which were thought, speech, and action of expression. Now we turn to the point of interaction of each soul with the body. So he starts like this. The animal soul from Klipas Noga. Klipas Noga is the middle klipa, because as I've mentioned many times, the animalistic soul in its, in its natural state is not necessarily evil. It's just selfish, but it's not necessarily evil. Within every person in Israel, while generally found, the reason why it says every person in Israel is because we discussed that, that very wicked people who are, who are not necessarily Jewish uh, will have a can have a completely evil soul. Um, of course, we discussed um, Gentiles who are uh, who are righteous have the this same animalistic soul which has good to it, but uh, there are wicked, wicked people in the world, and they possibly, as we discussed, Natanya may have absolutely a uh, completely rotten soul, and that may may explain some despots that have existed. You can ask, well, what about the Jewish despots? And it discusses elsewhere in Natanya that you can, if you if you're bad enough, you can exile your godly soul as well. But just pointing it out why it's saying within every person in Israel. While generally found in the blood, has a location in the body where it primarily rests. So again, the animalistic soul is primarily in the blood, as we mentioned in chapter one. But there is a primary location, which is the heart, in the left chamber that is filled with energized blood. So um, uh, we don't have the doctor on today, but you, you, you should be familiar that there are uh, chambers in the heart. But generally, the heart, um, after the, the blood goes around the body, it comes into your heart, kind of empty of oxygen. Then the blood first pumps it to the lungs, and then it comes back to the heart. Then the heart pumps it even further, and then it goes around the rest of the body. So the second time is the energized blood, meaning the blood that contains oxygen, right? When it first gets into the heart and the first pumping has no oxygen not not much oxygen it's not energized blood so what we're saying here is that the animalistic soul really resides in that really energized blood because the animalistic soul is full of passion you know um you know i say this all the time uh you know uh, um you don't typically see uh the same passion that people have for sports or for um for anything else like they do for uh you know synagogue or <laughs> don't typically you know uh, I, I haven't seen people coming to show, you know, with their faces painted or something, you know, uh, so excited for, you know, Yom Kippur, uh, you know, or something like that. Uh, there's a certain level of passion and dedication that we sometimes present. Or, or another example is like food. Like, you know, food is non-negotiable for, for most of us. 
Um, but, you know, sometimes some religious things we might skip if they're not convenient or we're on vacation. Or I'm not saying everybody here, but I'm, I'm just stating a general fact. The Tanya actually discusses that if you can actually pull your animalistic soul into your service of God, you'll actually have a more passionate service of God. But naturally, your godly soul is more calm and collected, and your animalistic soul is much more passionate. And we see that here with the animalistic soul being in the left chamber of the heart, the energized. That's why, by the way, it's it's a very difficult, um, uh, um, so to speak, inner war that we have because our, our animalistic desires are very passionate desires. And our godly desires are typically not as passionate. You know, you can create passion in, 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 in God, and some people are successful at it, but it's not as natural. It's much harder. Uh, some people do feel great passion and desire towards God, uh, but some people are born with it naturally, but many people are not. Something you have to work on. But passion for a chocolate cake and passion for sports or whatever your uh, specific physical passions are um, is typically... Uh, much more natural, and again, it's full of energized blood. So again, this is important to understand. The animalistic soul is very passionate. I don't think I really have to explain that to anybody. Uh, I think we all know that our animalistic souls are passionate. So anyways, he continues like this. As the verse states, for the blood is the soul. You know, they, they somehow have figured out that I give a class at 12, and they come and cut the grass every week at 12. I hope it's not coming through too much of the microphone. But anyways, um, for the blood is the soul. Uh, that's from Deuteronomy, which is why all your desires, pride and anger, etc., come from the heart. Um, we have a chat here. You can't hear it. Okay, good. Uh, then we continue. And from the heart, the animal soul. Um, spreads throughout the whole body. And also goes up to the head, to the brain, where those feelings which emerge in the heart are thought about, contemplated, and schemed upon by the animal soul. And this goes back to what I said before, that our desires are actualized through the mind, but it starts in the heart. In fact, the animal soul flows to the brain just as blood flows to all the limbs, rising to the head, the brain too, from its source in the heart. So he says like this. He explains exactly what he said. The animal soul functions in an emotional space. Its intellect is used largely to rationalize its desires. That's an important one. The brain a lot of times is used to rationalize and to plan how to obtain them. So earlier I spoke about how the animalistic soul uh, uses its mind to accomplish its desires. But another important point about the animalistic soul using the mind is it rationalizes. There's a, uh, a story, it's probably, there's many stories like this, but the story of the Chafetz Chaim, he was, one, sorry, Chaim of Brisk, the Brisker Rav, a great rabbi, going back, I think, 150 years ago. And uh, he once had a student who, um, you know, dropped all the religion and was going around and having a good time. And uh, one day his, his teacher met, met him and says, you know, why did you uh, leave, uh, why did you leave Judaism? Why did you leave it all? And he told him, well, I have all these different questions about Judaism. So the rabbi stops and says, let me ask you a question. When did those questions about Judaism start? Did they start uh, before you started enjoying life or after you started enjoying life? So he told him, oh, they started after I started enjoying life. He says, well, then I'm not going to answer your questions. He says, 
because they're not really questions. They're, they're rationalizations. If you want to have an actual intellectual discussion about them, happy. But uh, very often um, the, the questions we have are really rationalizations and people are not actually interested in the answers. This is, comes back to something I've said multiple times, one of my favorite lines, right? I say, to the believer, there are no questions and to the non-believer, there are no answers. Um, not getting into the believer part, but the non-believer, very often uh, people are not seeking answers when they have questions about belief. They, 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 the answers are basically what they want and the questions that they like uh, about religion and they don't really want to hear answers. They're not interested in discussing. Um, and so again, this all boils down to the animalistic soul using your intellect to rationalize what it wants to do. And unfortunately, rationalization uh, is used by everybody. Unfortunately, even the Nazis rationalized what they were doing. They were helping the world and, and, and cleansing the world of all the undesirable. And they, you know, they, they had major campaigns. And uh, there's a major problem with, uh, that's the problem with intellect. With uh, Intellect is, has its issues. It's, it's, it's not pure. Um, you can use it to rationalize in any which way that you want. Um, of course, if you get to the deepest understanding, you, you will find the um, how it's wrong, but you have to dig deep. So we want to we, in life, we want to figure out where are our, um, you know, what's driving our intellectual questions or our intellectual mind? Where is it coming from? Is it coming because that's what I really understand? Or is that coming because that's what I want? Same thing in Jewish law, by the way. Jewish law often is very unforgiving and we don't always like it, right? We don't always like what Jewish law has to say. So sometimes what we can do in those cases is say, well, you know, this is what Jewish law says. I'm not ready for it. And that's okay. That's fine, right? In other words, you say, the Jewish law says this. I'm not ready to do that, okay? That's okay. That's fine. But very often what people do, myself included, is uh, we try to rationalize the law so it fits with what we want. Say, ah, that, that law sounds crazy. There's no way. That's, that's too extreme. Must be, uh, you know, we can use our intellect very, you know, one of the lines I hear all the time, right? People say, well, uh, I know God wouldn't want me to do this. Or I, I know God, would, how do you know? You know what I mean? Like they say, well, I, I, know, I know God would forgive me for this. I don't know. I mean, maybe yes, maybe not. I don't know. You know, but people a lot of times will use that. Uh, listen, I'm not saying God is a, a evil and mean judging. I'm just saying the idea that, that um, if, you know, when people say that rationalization before they do something, it's very different, right? No, it's after you do with the fact, you know, God is very forgiving and you do to Cuba. But, and obviously, I, you know, I understand God is understanding of us as well. But to say that God wouldn't want me to do something else, I don't know that I could say. Now, I could say God understands that I'm mortal and I'm not going to do everything right. Okay, that's one thing. But to say that um, God, I know that, you know, God really wouldn't want me to do that. You know, I, I don't know. You know, a lot of times people are often saying it is coming from the heart. It's a fine line I'm trying to bridge over here. It's very, you know, just, you know, again, we have an understanding. We have a, a God who really loves us and understands us and knows that we're mortals and that we're not perfect. Yes, agree with that. But at the same time, we have to be clear with, what he desires from us and, and the goals that he wants us to reach. And he believes that we can get there. Um, and he believes in us. It's not easy. Um, as someone, I was just listening to a rabbi earlier today, 
um, he was saying like, um, you know, this, he said the same reason why we don't like all the mitzvahs is the same reason why God gives us the mitzvahs. Why do we like the mitzvahs sometimes? Because they interfere with our lives, right? The mitzvahs are interfering with our lives. There's things we want to do. They're interfering with what I want to do. And, um, okay, we'll see you. Uh, so they're, they're interfering with our lives. The mitzvahs interfere with our lives, but that's exactly why God wants to give us to them. He actually wants to interfere with our lives. Obviously, our belief is he wants to make our lives better because naturally we would go one way. And so the mitzvahs interfere with us and tries to lead us another way, but they do interfere with our lives. And sometimes they're uncomfortable. And sometimes we may come up with rationalizations, uh, but mitzvahs are not always going to be comfortable. Some of them are, some of them are wonderful, great, easy, and we completely understand them, but some of them are not. And um, that's what makes God, God and us human beings. Anyways, um, I know I got off a little bit off tangent, but uh, just I, I thought it's a very important point to really understand because that's really what the time is about, to understand our animalistic soul and understand all the devices that it may use to us. And its rationalization is one of its biggest tools. All right, so then he's going to continue. This is why the animal soul has just one focal resting place in the body in the heart center. That's its focal point. It starts with the heart. It is everywhere else but it starts in the heart. That's the idea. Um, and particularly in the left part of the heart. For those who know King Solomon, um, King Solomon says in Ecclesia in Kohelet, that's Ecclesiastes, right? Kohelet is Ecclesiastes. He says that the heart of a wise man is in his right side and the heart of a fool is in their left side. And this is the expression of what we're discussing over here that the animalistic soul resides primarily on the left side, which is the oxygenated blood, the passionate blood. The godly soul also has emotions, but they're not as passionate. Therefore, they're represented in the right side of the heart, which is kind of the blood, but it's a little more lifeless. It has less energy in it. Um, okay, now we're going to move on to the godly soul. Where is the godly soul? So the godly soul is in the brain. The place where the divine soul primarily rests is in the brain and the head. From where it flows to all the organs and the divine soul also has a secondary resting place in the heart. So again, the, the godly soul primarily resides in the brain. It's also in the heart. You know, I, I think this is very, this whole idea is very beautiful. A lot of times people, you know, look at Kabbalistic ideas like, what difference does it make if it's in the heart, it's in the mind, it's here, it's there. I have a godly soul, I have an animalistic soul, that's what I have to know. But this depiction helps us understand the war that's going on and helps us appreciate and how to make the right decisions. Depicting the animalistic soul as part of the heart, depicting the godly soul as part of the brain helps us understand that where they start from, where's their main uh, energy and um, how to try and figure out um, who's, you know, who's coming first. So a great example of this is say, um, uh, well, a lot of times we have our mind tells us one thing, but our heart can't get past it, right? Our mind tells us, you know, I should really be kind to this person. You know, it's been so many years I've been fighting with them. Maybe I should make peace. And the, and the heart says, what do you mean? You hate him. And don't you remember what he did to you, right? It's not, it's not actually really necessarily intellect. It's the heart, you know, rising up. It uses words. It's like, and don't you remember this and that and this and that and that and this and that that he did to you? Or sometimes we feel that we should um, pay someone uh sorry give somebody charity and then the heart 
the heart can get involved. But by the way, it works the other way as well. There are times where the mind is too cold to do the right thing as well. Let me read over here the next line. In the case of the divine soul, there's importance to both the mind and the heart. The divine soul's main energy is a mental one, but which is why its primary resting place is the cognitive center of the brain. But the purpose of the divine soul's presence in the body is to achieve mastery of the emotions, which is why it also has a secondary resting place in the heart. Um, this is an important thing. That's an important line. Uh, before I read the next line, um, I want to just talk about that. I just, I'll start off with a story. Um, the story is that uh, many years ago, there was a uh, Chabad Chassid who was bringing, you know, discussing an, a whole night about the importance of studying about God. And uh, because it says in the verse, that you should know God. And at the end of the night, the Rebbe came out and says, you should also bring it to your heart. In other words, it's important that our religion does not remain intellectual alone. So it's important to understand the godly soul is both in the mind and the heart. Yes, it's not centered around the heart and the emotions don't dictate, but we need a passionate form of Judaism. The mind is the starting place for that, but we need passion in our Judaism. And if we don't have passion, it's very hard, especially in today's day and age, to have it continue. And uh, so just as an aside, as we come to Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, as we come to Sukkot Simchat Torah, uh, find ways to emotionally connect with the holidays, not just to intellectually understand its day of judgment um, or, or coronating God as king, uh, which is a more positive uh, look at it, but um, it has to be uh, to be able to create emotions. So someone here is uh, asking about emotions. Um, what I'm saying is that the intellect for the animal souls to serve emotions, right? The animalistic soul uses intellect to serve the emotions. The godly soul uses intellect to achieve mastery over emotions. That would be the, the way of saying it. The Thank godly you. soul uses the intellect to achieve mastery over the emotions. All right, any questions or comments? Because I've been talking a lot. I haven't heard a lot. Uh, I don't. I don't. I don't like to feel that I'm talking too much. Hopefully, you're getting something out of it. No, no thoughts. Okay, then uh, I guess it's uh, very, very clear. As I always say, either it was very clear, or it was totally not clear. Somebody's asking about Job. You want to have a discussion about Job? Go on YouTube, find a rabbi that discusses Job. As <laughs> way off topic. Uh, we can have, as I said, uh, probably a couple classes in the book of Job. Um, okay. So, uh, uh, all right. So I have a question for you. Yes. So relating it to like uh, life in general, if you're working on your godly soul, you're working over on your mastery of emotions. Um, how do you like deal with somebody who is not, you know, when you, when you're experiencing somebody else, who you know is using their uh, animalistic soul? Very good question. I have I have a very fascinating answer for you, actually. So I'll, I'll repeat the question for clarity. The question is, all right, so you're working on yourself and you're operating with your godly soul. The other person, though, seems to be operating with their animalistic soul. 
how do you deal with them? Yeah, Number especially one, like husband wife, you know, something like that, that type of relationship. Uh, so, so one interesting line that was said by one of the Rebbes, he said like this, he says, typically when you're by yourself, you have one animal soul against one godly soul, right? So it's an even Stephen. He says, your animalistic soul doesn't care about the other person sinning. Your animalistic soul purely cares about your own pleasure. Your animalistic soul will not go out of its way to help someone else sin. So therefore, when you gather with someone else, you actually have two godly souls because you each have a godly soul and your godly soul does want to see other people doing good. And there's really only one animalistic soul. So that's always the benefit. We, we know in therapy today, right, there's, there's great benefits of, of working with a group. And the Kabbalistic and the, and the Hasidic understanding of it is exactly what I'm saying here, is that your animalistic soul purely cares about yourself. So your animalistic soul is not going to try and get someone else to do something wrong. And if it does, it's only to make it feel better, not because it cares about the other person sinning. So therefore, anytime you're gathering, you're, on, you're all already gaining two godly souls, one animalistic soul. All right, that's one just interesting idea and why I think group therapy is very helpful. But um, that being said, there is a reality and that some people are working on themselves less, some people are working on themselves more. And ultimately, ultimately, as we always say, you can really only fix yourself. And um, a lot of times you will find that um, as you work on yourself, the other people's issues will bother you less. They will have issues but they will bother you less. Does that uh, make sense? I was, I, where, where was yeah. I reading this somewhere recently about someone discussing, like basically accept the other people's issues and, and recognize that, uh, you know, there's, there's only so much you can do for them, but you can, you can, you can change yourself, work on yourself. And that will may or may not have a positive effect on the other person may or may not, make your interaction with them better, but uh, your life will be better if you work on yourself. Right? Okay. Uh, but good, good question. like the question. Okay. Um, let me uh, go back into the text over here. Uh, all right. Thank you. For that. I see some people have to run, but that's okay. Look, you catch the recording. Um, let's take a look over here. Uh, we discussed a moment ago that the godly soul has a resting place in the heart. Let's read it here. The divine soul's resting place in the heart is in its right chamber, which is devoid of energized blood. As the verse states, the heart of the wise man is on the right. The blood of the right side lacks energy to fuel animal the, the animal passions of the body. It is therefore the place in the heart where higher emotions for sacred things arise. Um, what are sacred type of emotions? He's going to explain this nexus of the divine soul in your heart produces your love for God. Like the flaming fire flares up in your discerning heart. When you use your brain to analyze and to recognize with dust ideas to arouse love. So he just kind of gave a, um, a short meditation over here. So again, so you don't get lost. He's saying when the godly soul in your brain thinks about God and awakens your desire and love for God, that is the godly soul awakening your godly heart. That's basically what he says. Uh, in, the, in this translation of the Tanya, he gives the actual meditations. Um, I'm going to leave it here on the screen, but I'm not actually going to read them. If you're interested, you can look at them. They're, they're interesting meditations. But 
for our purposes over here, the general idea to understand and to know is that that's how the mind, heart with a godly soul works. You have meditations about God, and then it comes and it awakens the heart to love God. That is one form of love, of a godly love that will appear in the right side of your heart, okay? Now he's going to continue. We now touch upon a more advanced type of meditation practice, which will result in the presence of God being felt more tangibly. So again, one type of meditation makes you desire to cleave, to, to get closer to God. Another type is, is seeing God in your life. As he says, also divine soul can bring a rejoicing of the heart and the glory of God and the splendor of his majesty. Um with when the eyes of the wise man that are in his head, using his mental powers of his chachma bina, gaze at the glory of the king and the beauty of his greatness, which is unfathomable and is limitless. So to make that more understandable, King Solomon says in Ecclesiastes, the eyes of the wise men are in his head. Now the eyes of all people are in their head. I would hope so, right? But what does it mean the eyes of the wise men are in his head? Is that what are you looking at? You are looking at things that are not seen, right? In other words, the eyes of the non-wise man is on what's in front of you, right? That's what people who aren't wise look at. They look at what's in front of them. You see the cookie, you eat the cookie. The wise man with the eyes and the heart sees the calories, right? That's what it means the eyes of the wise man are in the head. So if the eyes of the wise man are in your head, you can, in a sense, see God wherever you are. You can see God's life force, you can see God in, in the world around you. You can see God's unfathomable, endless, and limitless beauty all over the world. You don't need to see him physically because you don't see God physically. But with your mind eyes, you see God. As he says here, the second method of meditation involves what the Zohar refers to as gazing God. This does not refer to physical vision, but a mental one using the mind's eye. The experience is compared to sight since after lengthy meditation, you reach a point where godliness becomes tangible and real. So that's a beautiful, if you can get there, that's an amazing place, you know, where you can literally uh, see God uh, to where he's, so to speak, tangible. This is explained elsewhere. In addition to above the other holy emotions, the heart also originating from Chachma Bidadas in the brain. Okay. So there's all different types of emotions uh, that can originate in all different parts and um, places of the brain. Uh, before we move on, since uh, people today like, uh, like videos, there was a great, um, uh, there was a great depiction just describing uh, what we're discussing here. Chabad.org has a great um, section called Kabbalah Tunes. I would highly advise everybody reading the, watching the Kabbalah Tunes. They're great, they're short, like one minute. But um, here is uh, a good one, which uh, kind of depicts what we're talking about over here. And uh, it's just a minute, so I'm going to show it to you. Why not? Uh, videos are always good. One second. So let's go here. And let's share. We're going to share with this. One second. This is a quick, short depiction of what we're discussing today. And uh, tell me if you hear this. Um, are you hearing any sound? Yeah, we're good. You're hearing the sound. Okay, good. Meet Fievel 3.2, my latest version of Mechanical Pet. Fievel isn't just an ordinary robot. He has his own mind. Fievel, get back here! That doesn't work at all, because Fievel has a unique command system. Watch this. Yes, Fievel is controlled through a mind wave interface. 
As soon as my brain waves sink down to 12 hertz, he calms down as well. Fievel has helped me achieve mastery over the pet within me, my heart. You see, just like pet and master, the heart and mind have times when they are in communion, well synchronized with one another. And they have their times when the heart goes wild, screaming, WE HAVE TO! But we discussed that already. We decided we don't have to. But if we don't, we're gonna blow to smithereens! You feel that way because you are a heart, but I am a mind, and I know that if we don't, we'll survive. And so the mind provides the heart with focus and calm, so that the heart can provide the mind with warmth and joy. All right, so I, I couldn't hear it because of whatever, how the sound was sharing, but I hope you watched it. And, uh, you know, a nice little depiction, uh, you know, little short videos are always cute and good to watch. And it gives a nice little depiction of, uh, I think that would be a case of uh, um, the mind taming the heart. Um, so it's just a, a cute little idea over there. Um, all right. So with that, and again, I look up Kabbalah tunes on Kabbalah.org, a lot of great stuff. And if you ever watch the videos, he has a little explanation of all the videos on the bottom. Very, very nice. Very good. Um, yeah, five volts. Um, okay. So now we're going to move on to uh, the third part of today's discussion. We have described where the godly soul is and where the animal soul is in the body. Now we're going to discuss the actual war. Um, in the, uh, just if we want to have a description of uh, a war, in the book of Ecclesiastes, um, it says like this. There's a small city and there are very few people and a big king comes there and he builds big uh, towers and um, he finds a, uh, a man, uh, a foolish man and a wise man. I should probably, um, I should probably find the verse. But um, the point is that from this verse, the Kabbalists take that there is a little city and the little city is us, right? We've all heard that, you know, a, a person is a whole world, but we're going to use the description of a city. As the Talmud says, that a, a body is a city, okay? Every person is their own little city. And uh, it's a very small city. We have, you know, just so many limbs and so many organs. And uh, there is a big king, which is the uh, animalistic soul. And there is a wise man, which is the godly soul. Or you might call him the Yetzirah the Yetzirah So again, there's a city and it's a small city. And uh, there's somebody that wants to conquer it. And these are the two souls. The two souls want to conquer uh, this body. Um, so what happens in a war generally? A war is generally defined by uh, a desire to conquer land or to conquer or to get more money or to get people to be your slaves or to uh, take revenge uh, you know, there's all different reasons for a war, okay? In our case, the description of war is purely one and simple, and that is to conquer the land. Every soul wants to completely conquer the entire body. 
that the entire body should be subservient to it. Godly soul wants that the entire body should be subservient to the godly soul, which means that the entire body should be holy to God, wanting to connect to God, and should desire and think of connecting to God. Now, just as in a war, by the way, you can have two armies fighting over a single city at the same time, and each one controlling different parts of the city. We have that in our own lives as well. We can sometimes be controlled at different parts of ourselves at the same time by different elements of our uh, body. Now, now, they can't control the same part of the body at the same time. In other words, your mind can't be controlled by your both by your godly soul and your animal soul at the exact same time, your intellect, I should say, or your emotions, but you know, you can have one or the other and they can also flip back and forth, but um, you can have say your godly soul in your mind and your animal soul in your heart. It's, you know, it can happen. Um, the pro the main, uh, one of the main takeaways though of war that I want to get to is that when there's a war, um in this war particularly there is no um peace treaty okay in a war with two armies you can sometimes get to a point that there is a peace treaty what is the peace treaty based on that they want to that that both sides want to live in peace and they understand that by making peace we can both live in peace when do armies not make peace treaties when they do not share any common ground, when they don't have any um, common shared goal, right? So two countries can decide in order, we both desire people to live in peace. Yes, I know I want this territory. You want that territory. Okay. But, um, uh, you know, I'll give an example. Uh, you know, Japan, the only way, right, Japan had a very uh, interesting view and they were willing to go to great lengths to fight the whole world. The only way America was able to convince Japan, I, I'm not a historian, so don't take this as a history, it's just an idea, right? The only way Amer America was able to convince Japan was basically, you can fight to your death, but your death will come very quickly, you know? Uh, but I think they even found years later, you know, some Japanese uh, war people in the, in the middle of a forest, you know, still fighting for Japan. You know, 20, 30 years later, the Japanese were willing to fight to the end. The peace, you know, peace was kind of a, a foreign concept to them. You know, the only way to, to convince them was to say you'll be utterly destroyed. Um, so in order for peace to be achieved, you have to have the two sides sharing some common value. That's why it's very hard to make peace with despots because they really don't care about the people. They care about the territory. And the only way to really convince them is if you show them that, well, if you don't make peace, you're going to be decimated. That's the only language they understand. Okay? So, in this case, the godly soul and the animal soul don't, neither of them really have a goal of living in peace, per se. They have a completely different uh, a desire. The godly soul wants to become one and nullified to God, and the animalistic soul wants to serve itself. That, that's an unbridgeable gap. There's no peace treaty between those two things, between what the two souls desire, because there is no middle ground in that case. In the case of two armies, the middle ground is, well, we can at least all agree we want to live in peace. But the animalistic soul and godly soul, it's two diametrically opposed views of the world. There is no place for peace. And this is why the, the, the view of a war is very important. It helps us understand that there is no middle ground. I think the Tanya has said it many times. There really is no middle ground. There are items 
which are middle ground, and you can decide which side you're going to pull it to. But in our lives, there is no there's no neutral activities. There's no neutral activities. There's a war going on between our godly soul and our animalistic soul. And uh, and there is no middle ground. I'll give you an example from the Torah. In the Torah, we have a, a famous story of Rivka or Rebecca. Rebecca was pregnant with twins. And uh, what does the Torah say about her pregnancy? What does the Torah say about her pregnancy? Anybody? What does the Torah say about Rebecca's pregnancy? Why, you know, she's not the first person to have twins. Why was her pregnancy so difficult? They were fighting in the womb. Very good. Yes, they were having a fight, right? Having twins alone is not like, you know, just to explain it even further, right? The Torah says she was having a difficult pregnancy and she went to the rabbi. Now, typically, if you're having a difficult pregnancy, the first place you go to is the OBG, right? <laughs> the OBG will tell you you have twins and then you're okay. You're All right, I know I'm having a difficult pregnancy. I have twins. Why was she going to the rabbi? Because she was having a difficult pregnancy. <laughs> and please, this is a public service announcement. If you're having a difficult pregnancy, please first go to the doctor. Uh, OBD is, is a doctor. First go to the doctor. First go to the doctor. And if the doctor tells you you need prayers, I'll pray for you as well. But first go to the doctor. Why did she go to the rabbi? The answer is because this was no ordinary fight. It says when she would walk by a uh, synagogue, the, the, you know, the twin one one of them would try to run out, and when she would walk by, a, you know, a, a temple of idol worship, the other twin would try to run out, and she was very confused. What's going on? Do I have a confused son? You know, but what the the rabbi told her, the great rabbi Rabbi Shem told her that he told her, "Shnei goyim you have two nations in your room, and you will have two nations coming out from these two twins." And they'll always be fighting. One will be up, one will be down. These two souls, which the kids were Jacob and Esau, depict the godly and the animal soul. One's up, one's down. They're never like this. One's up, one's down. There's no, one is higher, one is lower. In our, in our godly souls, it's, 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 it's either you conquer or you get conquered. That's how it goes. That's how it works. And so the Tanya is going to draw on that uh, presentation from the uh, story of the twins and use it in our scenario. So we're going to end off with this because it's 1257. We're going to end off with this. Let's read this te text over here. Let's read the text. It says like this. Um, okay. The verse says, and one nation shall overpower the other nation. The point is, as he says over here, is we shouldn't think that the divine soul and animalistic soul can work independently. The body can only have one driver at a time. For the body is called a small city, just as two kings will fight over a city, each one desiring to conquer and rule over it. Um, I.e., each king desiring to conduct its inhabitants according to his will, so that they obey his every whim and everything that he decrees upon them. So to the two souls, the divine and the energizing animal soul from the klipa, fight each other over uh, uh, fight each other over the control of the body and all its limbs. And what are they fighting over? So he explains, your divine soul's desire and will is for exclusive rule over you and your conduct, and that all your limbs should obey and surrender themselves completely to it, becoming its exclusive vehicle of expression. 
to be a vehicle of expression for its ten intellectual and emotional powers, and three garments of thought, speech, and action mentioned above. Um, uh, divine soul's desire for its powers of garments to influence all parts of the body and being complete control of the body with nothing else interfering, God forbid. We're going to stop there. Um, so again, the divine soul wants to completely rule. And when you when you conquer somewhere, you don't want any foreign powers. So here he, he mentions the things we mentioned in the previous chapters, but the basic idea is that his desire is that you should take over the world, take over your your, your life, take over your body. Um, that's the, the godly soul's desire. It's a war and it completely wants to control you. The animalistic soul also wants to completely control you. And so these are the decisions we have every single day. I just want to mention something there's in therapy today called something called the parts theory. The most famous one is called IFS, internal family systems. But it, it kind of shares a, a similar concept with this. You can discuss with the Torah therapist how to put the two together. But the, the IFS family therapy systems, the parts system basically describes this idea where you have inside of you all these different feelings and emotions, but there's only one driver, you know, as it's described in some places, there's like a bus. Imagine you have a bus and in your bus, uh, actually a uh, Pixar did a movie about it uh, called um, Inside Out. It's kind of a, an example of this, you know, where you have different feelings, you have sadness and and happiness and uh, you know anger. And there's only one driver of the bus at each time. And, and, and all the different parts are fighting who's going to get to drive the bus, you know, who's driving you at any given moment. So that's what's going on inside of us. There's a, there's a, there's a war. Is our godly soul going to drive our bus, or is our animalistic soul going to drive our bus? And um, each one desires full and total complete control. And there's no peace between the two. There's no peace between the two, and that may explain why sometimes we feel so conflicted about ourselves. We walk around feeling conflicted, and we want to know why. Why? Why? We, why do we have? And that's what's going on. And uh, Tanya will explain to us later what our goal is. But this is so to understand that when you feel those uh, conflicting feelings and desires, it's completely normal. It, it, and actually, it means that you have, a, you have a healthy godly soul and a healthy animal soul. There's nothing wrong with that. Hopefully, though, you allow your godly soul to win more than the animalistic soul wins. And um, we're going to uh, we're gonna stop here. And I appreciate all of you coming. And... Uh, Hopefully, uh, as the new year comes to us, we'll each be assigned and sealed for a good life. And uh, we will be able to conquer more of our little city that we have inside of us and uh, listening more to our mind and allowing it to lead our hearts. Thank you.